to heaven. The seals are being broken. The wrath of God via the tribulation is being poured out on the earth. And look at verse 11 of chapter 6. And it says, There were given to each of them a white robe. These are tribulation martyrs. And they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Do you see that? The martyrdom there is not an accident. It's not a being in the wrong place at the wrong time kind of deal. They are to be patient, it says, until the rest of the people who have been appointed unto martyrdom receive their martyrdom. In God's great plan, He calls for a certain number of His children to seal their testimony in their own blood. It's not random. It's not up in the air. It's not, you know, maybe it'll be me, maybe it won't be. In the great plan of God, of course, He doesn't reveal to us ahead of time who it's going to be. But the point is that in the great plan of God, even the martyrs are foreordained before the foundation of the world. Suffering is absolutely a part of the plan of God. Go back to Hebrews 12 now. And because that's true, we need biblical perspective on it. We desperately need biblical perspective. So tonight, as we look at Hebrews 12 together, we're going to encounter four facets of Christian suffering that we must embrace. We have to embrace the truth with regard to Christian suffering so that we will demonstrate the reality of our own conversion should we be called to suffer. We've got to think God's thoughts after Him in regard to this topic. We've got to let the Spirit of God using the Word of God to shape us in this area. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It's not fun to think about. We must be shaped by the Word of God. Now, I've given you four, or we're going to look here at four facets together. Here they are. They're on your handout for you. First, we must embrace Jesus' example of suffering. Jesus has given us an example, and we must embrace that example. Secondly, we must embrace the Bible's explanation of suffering. We don't just suffer in, in some random sense that the Bible doesn't tell us why. It gives us here in Hebrews 12 a reason, an explanation. Now, we might not like that explanation, but we must embrace it, for it is the truth. Third, we must embrace an exemplary response to suffering. There is a proper way to respond to, to suffering, and we must em, embrace that exemplary response. And finally, we must embrace the the futility, or futility rather, of escape from suffering. It is futile to try to escape it. And the writer here will point that out. So as I said, this is, this is not fun. Embrace the example. Embrace the explanation. Embrace the exemplary response and embrace the futility of escape. Now let me contextually just get this set for you so you're sure that I'm not running away with this and kind of making it up as I go. Go to the end of uh, chapter 10. 
of Hebrews. Verse 32 and following says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He enters now into chapter 11 and he gives us example after example after example of the saints of God who suffered, who were pursuing God, never arriving at what the final destination here on earth that they were pursuing. Yet they suffered for it. And he makes that most explicit and clear when you get to the end of of, uh, chapter 11, where he says in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And after thee and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what God had promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The context is suffering. The context is suffering. This small Jewish Christian congregation here at the, towards the second half of the first century is being pressured because they have abandoned their traditions, their, their, their lineage, their Levitical system under Mo, the Mosaic system, and they have embraced Jesus Christ, and that has brought tremendous suffering on them. And the temptation for them is to go back, is to flinch, is to, is to add back in not only Christ, but add back the sacrificial system so that they would take the edge off the suffering. That was their temptation. Let me just be a little less distinct in my commitment to Christ, and then maybe I won't have to suffer so much. If I don't shine so brightly, maybe I won't get noticed so much. And he is exhorting them over and over again not to do that, that there is a tremendous danger when one does that. And now we arrive at chapter 12. And as I say, first facet of suffering that he deals with here in chapter 12 is that we must embrace Jesus' example of suffering. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, therefore, he's calling back to what he has just given them. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. He says, look at the example of Jesus Christ. Now, this chapter 12 here is is laced with athletic metaphors. There are a number of them that sort of flow through it, and it begins here. And what he's calling them to is is a race. 
He's saying, run this race with endurance. You know, the, uh, the Boston Marathon is, is world-renowned for being a pounding marathon race. Because the first 20 miles are not grueling enough, but from mile six onward is uphill. Right when the legs turn to rubber, when the, when the blisters are the size of, of, you know, half dollars on the bottom of the soles of your feet, when your body is about ready to crash, that's when you begin to hit the incline. They call it heartbreak hill. And it knocks a lot of good marathon runners out of the race. He's saying to us, enter into this race and do it with endurance. And he says here, look, in verse 1, there is a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, what is he talking about here? The idea immediately would come to your mind, I think, of a stadium, wouldn't it? A stadium filled with the witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, in context, it takes you right back to chapter 11. It's all those saints of old that have gone before. They are the great cloud of witnesses that he's talking about here. Now, the the athletic metaphor, I think, cannot be pushed too far. He's not saying that they are sitting around in heaven watching us run our race. That's not the point he's communicating. What he's communicating is that we are to look to them as witnesses of ones who have run the race well. We are to look to this great cloud of witnesses, those that have gone before us, those that have run the the race well, and we are to follow after them. We are to follow their example. It's not so much, as I say, that they look at us as it is that we look at them. Heroes of the hall of faith. And in order to run this race of endurance, he says there are two hindrances, two encumbrances that we need to get rid of. You see it? Let us lay aside every encumbrance and, or, and every sin which so easily entangles us. That's what he's saying you've got to get rid of to run this race and to run it successfully. We have to get rid of the encumbrances and we have to get rid of the sin. Now, this hindrance or, or this encumbrance literally is a weight. That's what it's talking about. We have to get rid of the weight. Now, it's not, we're not sure what he's talking about. It may be, in an athletic metaphor, excess body weight. That may be what he's referring to. What he may be saying is, in an athletic metaphor, you've got to slim down before you run a marathon, right? I mean, how many 250-pound marathon runners have you ever seen? I mean, the sport just doesn't lend itself to, to people carrying that kind of body weight. It's the, it's the weight or it's the body type of someone who is lean and light. So it may be originally that kind of an idea is that we're to lay aside the the excess body weight that we're carrying into this race. Or it may have reference to some other item such as loose clothing that would weight us down. So whatever it is, whether it's body weight or whether it's loose clothing, the point of the factor is it slows the runner down and it must be jettisoned. Years ago, many years ago now, I had uh, <clears throat> enlisted in the, uh, in the United States Marine Corps as part of their officer training program. And I was heading off for boot camp. And so I wanted to get ready for boot camp. I wanted to kind of pre-do it. And so I used to um, dress up in, uh, with combat boots and so forth, and I'd put a backpack on, and I would put weights in the back of it so that I could run carrying weights on my back, figuring that would help me when I finally got there. Well, that silly idea might be okay for getting ready for boot camp, but if you're going to run a marathon, that would be the worst thing you could do would be to put on a backpack and combat boots and, you know, fill it full of 20-pound dumbbells. 
The idea is to strip it off, get rid of it. We need to run light. Now, in context here, he may, the encumbrance for them may be their ancestral traditions. That may be what he's talking about. It may be those things that they've grown up with that are still kind of hanging on and dragging them down. These things are not sinful in and of themselves. And, and we know that because he gives us the second hindrance that has to be gotten rid of here, and that's sin. You see that. So these encumbrances are not sinful in and of themselves. What they are is just weights that, that slow you down, that hinder the process to make it less likely that you'll finish the race. In the light of the call to suffer, we need to run lean. We need to run lean. Now, what kind of hindrances are there that slow us down? What kind of encumbrances do we have? Well, let me suggest a couple for you. It might be friendships that you have that, are, that inhibit your Christian growth. Not that a friendship in and of itself is wrong. It's just what it does to you. And by the way, one person's encumbrance may not be another person's. What encumbers me may not encumber you and vice versa. There's kind of a personal nature to this. So maybe it's friendships or, or associations, maybe business associations that you've picked up along the way. Maybe it's places that you might go to or, pardon me, pleasures that slow you down, that, that make you fat and overweight and un, unable to run the race. Maybe it's family obligations, family obligations. The call here is to suffer. And sometimes family obligations can get in the way of that. You know, we've, we've been starting to talk here about church planting. For us to do church planting, it's going to require sending people out to do church plants. And the process of being sent out to do church plants means by necessity separation from family and friends. That's painful. And if the relationships within your family and with your friends are such that it prevents you from being able to follow the call of God and go, that would be an encumbrance that has to be jettisoned. That's the point. It's not that the family relationships are bad. Certainly not. It's not that the friendships that you have, even friendships within the church are bad. Certainly not. But if they are encumbering you, if they are weighting you down and they are holding you back in the face of going forth to serve God, then they need to be stripped off. They need to be stripped off. So it's these encumbrances. Secondly, beyond the encumbrances that act as a hindrance here, there is what he calls the sin which so easily entangles us. Some translations call this a besetting sin. Now, a number of commentators don't... There is the definite article here. Do you see it? The sin. A number of commentators don't interpret that or don't, don't believe that the writer is talking about a specific sin, but that he uses the definite article to, to just highlight sin and its effects in general as an encumbrance or an entanglement. And that's certainly grammatically possible. But I think he is referring, and so I, I go with some of the older commentators, that he's talking about a specific sin, an individual sin, a besetting sin. The sin in each and every one of our lives a, that has a particular characteristic that slows us down. Certain areas 
where we're weak, where we're susceptible. And then in suffering, it will drag us down. Again, for them, I think it's, it's fleeing back to the law. That's the sin that he's talking about for them. It's a, it's a running back to the law. It's, a, it's a adding the law back into their Christian testimony to take the hard edges off in order to avoid suffering. I was telling Pastor Vince earlier, he was asking me about the book and what effect it's had on me in these months we've been going through it together. And I said, well, I never really thought I had much of a tendency to run back to the Mosaic law, you know, dragging the goat to church. We don't, you know, I don't do that. It's got no appeal to me. But the issue of, of my past and, and jettisoning my past and, and not allowing anything to interfere with my relationship with Christ, that does have application for me. And I'm sure it does for you too. So he's talking about specific sin. Sin that is your Achilles heel, sin that is my Achilles heel. Maybe for some it might be things like jealousy. Maybe jealousy is, is something that just you struggle with. It grips your heart. Maybe for others, it's dishonesty. Maybe there's just a sense when, when you're pressured, when you put it in a situation where the truth will bring consequences to you, you, before you know it, you open your mouth and out comes a lie. You have to constantly fight against that. Maybe that's your besetting sin. Maybe it's temper. Maybe you have an explosive temper, right? The pressure grows and boom, you pop off like, you know, uh, old faithful. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's pride, that insidious pride that creeps into all of our hearts. Maybe that's something you just really struggle with. We don't know. And again, one person might struggle more with one and another with another. But we need to know our hearts before God and know what it is that entangles us. Envy, criticism, laziness, covetousness, hatred, lust, unthankfulness. There's many that can be our besetting sin. But whatever it is, it has to be stripped off. It has to be left behind. Unless we shed this baggage, we have no hope. No hope of running this race of endurance. And particularly when suffering is brought to bear on it. Now, how do we run this race? What is, how do we do it? He says we embrace the example of Jesus. Look at verse 2. Strip this stuff off, he, he says, and then fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your gaze upon Jesus. Look at the finish line. He is both, what he says here, the author and perfecter. He is the trailblazer and the leader of faith. He is the example. And notice, he doesn't use the, the name Christ. He doesn't say Jesus Christ. He says Jesus. Referring to Jesus of Nazareth, the human man, right? The second person of the triune Godhead who came and took human flesh to himself. The man Jesus. That's who we're supposed to fix our eyes on. Why? Well, I think because for many of us, there's a sense in which we... Uh, we think that Jesus maybe walked through life about six inches above the fray. You know what I mean? That he really didn't go through what we're going through. But after all, he was the God-man, right? How could temptation be to him what it is to you and I? Well, we've dealt with that earlier in the book. 
But he reinforces the point here. He says, setting your gaze or fixing your gaze upon Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. And what is it about him that we're supposed to set our gaze on? Well, there are really three, three characteristics of him. One, his person. Two, his attitude. And three, his example. Fix your gaze on Jesus. First, on his person, the author and perfecter of faith. He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the trailblazer. He is the leader of faith. You know, this is shown nowhere more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you want to know what a faith uh, walk looks like in the face of suffering, go to the Garden of Gethsemane and spend some time there. In the Garden, Jesus said, Not my will, but your will be done. Right? Father, if there is any way to escape this, the dread that he had there the night of his arrest, that he knew what was pending before him, was nearly paralyzing. And yet in faith upon God the Father, he rested himself and he went forward with what he was called to do. He is the author and perfecter of faith. We're also to look at his attitude. Notice there it says at the end of verse 2, For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. His attitude was he counted it joy. You see that? That's what sustained him. It was his attitude. As he looked at the cross, he saw joy. Joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's hard for us to understand. The cross to us is a piece of jewelry. It's something that people wear around their necks, right, on a chain. It's a fashion statement for many. Yet it's the most torturous means of execution probably ever been devised. It was so brutal, so painful, so shameful and degrading that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. He was protected by law. Crucifixion was reserved only for the scum of the earth, for the lowest of the low, for slaves, and not just slaves, but seditious slaves. To be crucified was to be drugged down to the lowest, most despicable depths that humanity can be drugged. But look at Jesus' attitude. For the joy set before him, he not only endured the cross, he despised the shame. He looked at the shame and he said, it's no big deal in light of the joy set before me. Now again, that doesn't mean that he, that he was not fearful of it. He was. Again, it tells us in the scriptures in Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood. His heart was poured out over it. It's not that he walked through life and he said, oh yeah, okay, today I'll be crucified. You know, it's all part of the plan of God. No big deal. Not at all. Not at all. But the attitude that took him through that horrendous time was the joy that he had set before him. He knew where he was going. And that enabled him to get through so we follow his example. And his example here in verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Suffering is a way of grinding people down. You know, just 
physical suffering can grind you down. Just the, the stuff in life. If you, if you have or you know on someone who has long-term illness, it kind of grinds you down. You never feel quite good. There's always pain. There's always uh, discomfort. And it just becomes a part of your life. You, you learn to deal with it, but it slowly eats away. must endure we must hang tight we must consider him who endured such hostility so that we do not lose heart maybe in uh, i didn't see any of the super bowl uh, today to see any of the advertisements so i don't know if gatorade made the advertising cut this time around or not but normally they have some pretty interesting commercials gatorade right the thing that refreshes the expended athlete Well, we need spiritual Gatorade. How's that? We need spiritual Gatorade to keep us going in the race. And the spiritual Gatorade is Jesus Christ as we consider Him and His example. That's what will refresh us and give us a fresh commitment. So we must embrace the example of Jesus' suffering, and I must move or we're not going to finish. So secondly... (laughs) We must embrace the Bible's explanation of suffering. That's verses 4 through 11. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why does God bring suffering into the life of his people? Well, the short answer is, is that's how he makes us like Jesus Christ. Using a combination of pastoral approaches here, he's going to answer this question. First, he says to them, in effect, you, you know, basically you may think you've got it bad, but I don't see any bodies lying around here. That's verse 4. Okay? You guys may think you've got it bad, but there's no dead bodies laying around. That's kind of in-your-face pastoral counseling, right? You haven't died yet, so you got more to go. Okay? You may have some more to go here. And so then he launches into it, basically. And what he says to them is, don't you know the scriptures? You should expect this. You should expect suffering. Because according to the scriptures, that's how God deals with us as sons. And to do this, he cites back to Proverbs chapter 3. 
He takes them back into their Old Testament scriptures, into Proverbs chapter 3, and he says, listen, it's there for you to see. This is why God does it. He does it because he loves you, because he's treating you as a son, because he is bringing you to maturity, just like a human father brings his son to maturity. Now, this uh, argument may be shocking to you, right? It may shock you to think that God is bringing suffering into your life. There's a, there's a, a sense in which people like to think that, that somehow God just allows these things to happen. But the scripture says in a number of places, it's not that God just allows. He's sort of looking down and he's watching what's happening. He's going, okay, well, I'll let that happen. No, God brings it into your life. He brings it into your life, just like you as a father bring into the life of your children suffering for a purpose. You design it for them. He designs it for us. So if God is the one who is bringing the suffering, how is that an encouragement? What gives us the encouragement from that? Well, the answer is, lies in in our understanding of the Scripture. If we can't find encouragement in this, what the writer is saying to them and to us is that you don't know the Bible very well. If this doesn't encourage you, you don't know your Scriptures very well. And you know, the modern church in America, I think, is so uh, uh, unaware of suffering because they don't know their Bibles very well. It's just a foreign, alien concept. Suffering happens over there. That's like third world stuff, right? You know, if they were as economically advanced as we are, as educationally sophisticated, if they had the means of production and and if they had democracy and government like we do, then they wouldn't suffer because we don't suffer. I mean, that is the most convoluted misunderstanding of the purposes of God imaginable. We don't know our Bible, so that's why we don't know much about suffering. As one writer said, he said, we cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. I kind of like that. We, We will not or cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. Where comes the source of our comfort and strength? In times of trouble and suffering, it comes from the Word of God. It comes from from an understanding of the Word of God. That means time spent in the Scriptures. That means that if we are not to, to think lightly of suffering or to reject God's purposes for suffering when it comes into our lives, then we must understand the Scriptures. For if we do dismiss it, we betray an appalling ignorance of what the Scriptures have to say. Again, someone wrote here, it said, quote, many today do not know enough of God's word to survive a skinned knee, close quote. What a sad statement, huh? Scripture is what gives us our understanding of the explanation of suffering. So what is his explanation here? Let's see if we can work through this analogy rather quickly. It's basically the, the analogy of the relationship of a father and a son, and at least About half of us in here can relate directly to that analogy, and the other half can relate to it as well, I think. Children receive discipline from their fathers, let's just say from parents, right? They receive discipline from their parents. And at first, it doesn't 
from their point of view, seem like such a good deal, right? You know, they always can tell you about so-and-so's parents who, you know, that's not their rules or, or they, they don't appear so harsh. You know, they don't put it quite that way. They've got a cuter way to put it, but right? You know, it's almost, gee, I wish I was so-and-so's kid because they get to stay up late, you know, and, and on and on and goes, Right? So as a, as a youngster, as a child, misunderstanding the purpose of discipline, it, it seems really like they're, they're very fortunate and very happy growing up with little or no discipline in their lives. Kind of the uh, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer mentality, right? Footloose and fancy free. But what the scripture says is, in the end, that is tragic. A child raised without discipline is a tragedy. Because the child is, is unformed. The child is wild. The child is lawless. The child does not demonstrate holiness. Does not model the character and virtue of God. In fact, what the writer says here, right, verse 8, is that if your parents don't discipline you, they're treating you as if you are illegitimate, born out of wedlock. Basically, they don't care about you. They don't care. They have no place for you. They're not interested in investing time and energy in you. You're not their legal heir. Specifically, God uses the suffering, the discipline of suffering, to make us like Him. Look at verse 10. For they, parents, disciplined us for a short while as seemed best to them. Boy, we can all give probably testimony to that, right? You know, as parents, we, uh, we don't do it right all the time. We end up chastising the wrong victim or the wrong culprit or whatever, right? But I always figure that I missed one or two along the way, and so it <laughs> probably balances out somewhere, you know? So it seemed best to us. Sometimes we are too harsh. Sometimes we're too lax. It seemed best to us we did it at the time. But notice the contrast. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share His holiness. Romans 8.29 says that, that God is committed to conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. He's committed to making us like Jesus Christ. And as the writer has just showed us here in the first three verses, that the life of Jesus Christ was a life of suffering by which he learned obedience to the Father. Suffering, the discipline of suffering, is one of God's means, strategies, to make you like Jesus Christ. The beauty of it is, is that man's or our parents' wisdom is, is finite and Often, he's out of balance. They're out of balance in their discipline, but not God. He disciplines us for our good. You see that, verse 10 again? It's in the perfect wisdom of God that he brings exactly the right amount. He always gives us just enough. But it's not pleasant. Again, let your eyes drop down to verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. I mean, he's a realist. He's a realist. As a child, it's not joyful. All right? My father had a big paddle, is what he used. And it was thin, and it was aerodynamic, and uh, he was pretty fast with it. 
Right? We all had our own techniques. Okay? You can all tell stories and attest to it, I'm sure. It's not joyful, sorrowful. But in the end, it produces, for those who have been trained by it, right? It produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That in a young life, and, and by extension and infinitely more in our lives, as God, the infinite and all-wise one, brings the correct amount of discipline through suffering into our lives. The only proper response is to embrace it by faith. To embrace it by faith. That in the, the reality that in the end, suffering sanctifies. That's the truth of it. Suffering sanctifies. And that takes us to the third facet. We must embrace an exemplary response. An exemplary response. Verses 12 to 17. Therefore... Understanding that God uses it. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You must embrace an exemplary response. And the author here details three exemplary responses to suffering. First, in verses 12 to 13, help those who are weak. Help those who are weak. Again, he reverts back into an athletic metaphor here. He goes back to that athletic figure of speech, and what he says is, is he encourages them to brace up the drooping limbs of their brothers so that they can press on to the goal. Patch them up, is what he's saying. Brace them up. Do you see it? Strengthen them, those that are weak, feeble. That is those who are discouraged. Those who are downtrodden by the suffering that they're undergoing. You know, if God were to bring suffering on this church beginning tonight, some would respond with amazing faith. Others would be discouraged. They would, they would begin to wilt under the pressure. But we're a body. We're committed together as a body of Christ. The strong are not to look on the weak and say, well, gee, if you'd have been a little tougher, you'd have made it. Sorry. They're to come alongside them, to, to lift them up, to brace them up, to help them to finish and run the race of endurance. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. On, uh, <laughs> and you'll get an insight into my, uh, my mind here. But on Sunday evenings... Uh, beginning at, what time does it start, honey? Nine o'clock? I think it's nine o'clock on the Military History Channel. They, uh, <clears throat> they have all kinds of uh, shows devoted to special forces. That's what's called Special Forces Night on Sunday night. I love it. Just eat that stuff up. 
Well, they had uh, on there what they call the Ultimate Ranger Competition. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Ultimate Ranger Competition. It's held, I think, if it's not every year, it's every couple of years, whereby the best Army Rangers from all over the world, U.S. Army Rangers, they get together in teams of two, and they compete on a series of grueling events over 72 hours in which there's essentially no sleep, only the sleep that's, that's caught between events. And they push them beyond what is right for anybody to be pushed. And one of those grueling events is a, a um, I think it's a 15-mile forced march in full combat gear with a 100-pound rucksack. It's a road march. It's a timed event. And so they go out in pairs with 100 pounds on their back and carrying their rifle and they're in full gear, boots and all. And they pound it out on this road. And what really stuck in my mind when I, the last time I watched it was this pair that were coming along, and one of them went, came up lame. He came up lame about halfway into the, into, the, into the event. And rather than drop out, his buddy said, give me your ruck. And so he took his partner's 100-pound rucksack, and he threw it up on top of his own. He's now carrying 200 pounds on his back so that his, his partner could limp along and they could finish the race. Now, they didn't win the event, They came in close to dead last, but they finished. They finished the event. They did not drop out. And it was just an incredible display of of team, um, I don't know what you call it, love for one another that would allow somebody to do that. And that, I think, illustrates what he's talking about here, is to help those who are weak, bind up the weak limbs. Secondly, we're to live peacefully and holy lives. We're to live peaceful and holy lives, verse 14. That's an exemplary response to suffering. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, it may not be possible to live at peace with everyone. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that as far as it depends on us, right, be at peace with all people. Sometimes it's just not possible. But the point is, is that that is to be the, the, uh, what we are about, pursuing peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. This is to what is to characterize our life. We are to, to be people of peace. In the midst of suffering, our response is to be a response of peace. Response of peace. That's difficult. When suffering comes, what's the natural response? Revenge, right? Now, let's be honest. I know what's in your sinful little hearts. Okay? It's revenge. That's what you want. But he says we're to be at peace with all men. We're to follow the the example of Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, what? Reviled not back in return. We are to be at peace with all men. We're to pursue holiness without which we'll never see the Lord. Suffering can bring out interesting things that lie within us, right? It sort of reveals the character down within us. It's not uncommon, I've been told, that uh, when a couple has a severely handicapped child 
that it brings tremendous stress into the relationship. In fact, I've been told that the divorce rate among husbands and wives who have severely handicapped children is higher than the national average. That it just brings such stress and pressure into their lives that their relationship can fracture. That they begin to point fingers at one another. There's a patience factor goes away as they're they're ground down by the reality of what they have to do. Suffering could do that in the church as well. It should pull us together, not drive us apart, but it could. could drive us apart. So we're to live peacefully with all men, outside the church, inside the church, and pursue holy lives. Third exemplary response is we are to guard against unbelief. Verses 15 through 17, guard against unbelief. See, as members of a body here, of a local body, we have a responsibility not just for our own holiness, that's verse 14, but we have a responsibility for the holiness of the community together as a group. The answer to Cain's question is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. The holiness of the community of God that meets here at 1330 West 15th Street is your responsibility and it is mine. We are in this together. And that responsibility manifests itself in a couple of ways. One is that we are to to follow up on those who have started the race and then because of suffering have turned back. That's verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. There are many who start and then kind of fall out of the race. But we are to come along and we are to get them back onto the road. Additionally, the fellowship must not tolerate any sin in the camp. Notice what he says here, the root of bitterness. Do you see that? Verse 15, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. That's a reference back to Deuteronomy 29 verse 18. It's speaking not of the sin of bitterness, it's it's a description of sin. The root of bitterness springing up is a description of sin springing up within the camp. Which ultimately will defile us all. It must be dealt with. And the illustration for this that he draws here is the life of Esau. The life of Esau. A man who lacked faith in God and God's promises. He thought so little of what God had promised that he traded the whole uh, Abrahamic promise away for a bowl of lentil soup. Gag. And I just can't can't imagine. The whole thing, all that God had promised was his. He traded it away for a bowl of soup. He was a godless man. He was an immoral man. Perhaps I can illustrate uh, using a football motif. Let's see if this works. All three of these exemplary responses to suffering. Right? Here they are. We uh, have to help those who are weak. We have to live peaceful and holy lives. And we have to guard against unbelief. Here it is. How many times have you heard after a big football game, they put members of the losing team on... And the first thing they do is uh, they begin to point fingers at their teammates and their coach about what went wrong, right? We would have won if it hadn't have been four. Now, they may not say it just that directly. Sometimes they're a little more coy about it, but they're pointing fingers at everybody else, right? 
They'll talk about how the coach made a bad call, shouldn't have gone for it on fourth down, right? Or the quarterback, he threw too many interceptions, or the offensive line didn't give adequate enough pass protection, or the running back, if I'd have just had 10 more carries, you know, then we would have won, that kind of thing. Instead of rallying together in the face of their loss, they begin to chip and chip away at the unity of the team. So instead of binding up the injured, that is encouraging those people who had an off day, instead of living peaceable, holy lives, that is keeping quiet about their frustrations, instead of airing them on national television, instead of guarding against unbelief, that is bad-mouthing the coach, instead they rip and they tear at the community, the team. Beloved, uh, suffering does not produce character, it reveals it. You want to know what's inside? Turn up the heat. Okay? Just turn up the heat and the pressure and what's inside will come bursting forth. You have to embrace Jesus' example of suffering. You must embrace the Bible's explanation of suffering. You must embrace the exemplary response to suffering. And fourth, we must embrace the futility of escape from suffering. Verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. Let me see if I can pull this together quickly. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the point he's making? What he's saying is that in the face of intense persecution for these early believers, there was a, there was a pressure to go back to Israel or to Egypt, rather, to, to go back to the Mosaic Law, to bring it alongside of their faith in Jesus Christ, to take the edge off their distinctive Christian lifestyle. And he's saying you cannot do that. And so he warns them first. He said, do you really want to go back? Do you really want to go back? And he reminds them of what it was. That when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, there was such shaking, such 
smoke, such awesome presence of God that it petrified them. God was so holy that even a beast touched the mountain. They could not slay it up close. They had to kill it at a distance. They had to stone it because they could not come close to it. God and his awesome holiness. Is that what you want to go back to? When you now have this new covenant that has been revealed to you in Jesus Christ. The mediator, verse 24, of the new covenant, right? Whose blood, he says, speaks better than Abel. That is that Christ's blood calls out for mercy and forgiveness. The blood of Abel calls out for justice and revenge. He says if they didn't escape the judgment, those who turned their back on the law at Sinai, do you think you will escape if you turn your back on Christ? That's the force of his argument here. He reminds them of the terror. And he says, is that what you really want? If you turn from Christ... Because of persecution, you face a consuming fire. How does that work for you and me? I think it's a pretty sobering warning, isn't it? It's a pretty sobering warning. You cannot escape the suffering. To turn from Christ to escape the suffering is to run full on into the awesome holiness of God who is a consuming fire. It would be like the prophet says to flee from the lion and run headlong into the bear. There's no escape. It's futile. It's futile to think you may escape by denying Christ, by taking the edge off your Christianity. You cannot escape that which God has purposed for you. These are the facets of suffering that we must embrace. We must understand or embrace the Jesus example. He is our example. We've got to embrace the Bible's explanation for why God brings suffering into our lives. We must embrace the exemplary response to that suffering and we must embrace the futility of escape from it. There is no escape. There is no escape. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Father, that kind of thinking about you causes us to sit bolt upright. It's easy for us to mistakenly, Father, think that uh, your, your wrath is more of an Old Testament thing. That, that's the way you were then. But now you're loving and kind and gentle and merciful and long-suffering. And, and through Jesus Christ, the wrath is for those that don't believe. We, we, don't, we don't think much about it. But the writer brings it to bear here, and he does it in a very strong way. That our Father, we might understand that you are the same that the God who descended on Mount Sinai with such display of awesome holiness that caused the people to tremble is the same God today, just as holy, just as awesome. So our Father, to seek to escape is foolish. Lord, we confess that we do not want to suffer.
but we also acknowledge that suffering is what you have determined to use in our lives to one degree or another to conform us to the image of Christ. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.